Good morning, church. Wow, what a joy it is to be with you today. I've looked forward to this ever since the invitation came many months back from your pastor and my friend, uh, Dr. Richardson, to be here. And I'm grateful for this privilege. Thank you for the opportunity to be with you today. I've had a wonderful time Friday night and Saturday night with the Bible study teachers here in your church. We've been able to work together and talk about Hebrews, and I've enjoyed meeting them. And uh, I envy all of you who are going to be able over the next nine months to sit under their leadership and their teaching of this great book of Hebrews. So uh, my appreciation expressed to all of you uh, you teachers, for the encouragement that you've been to me. And of course, I want to express my appreciation to my friend, who is your pastor, uh, Brother Lewis, who uh, I've known now for 20 years nearly, and grateful for his friendship in my life. And uh, I want him and his sweet wife to know, and all of his family, how much I love and appreciate them and the graciousness they've extended to me in inviting me to come and be with you has been and continues to be a rich, rich blessing to me. Well, I want to invite you to join me in the book of Hebrews. You might have surmised that uh, since we have been preparing and studying uh, with the teachers to teach in the book of Hebrews in the coming uh, months, you might not be surprised at all that I would preach from the book of Hebrews. Now, your pastor gave me some liberty. He did say, hey, just pre would you preach out of Hebrews? And uh, so I told him I would be excited and honored to do that. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, which is the prologue to the book of Hebrews. Seventy-two words in the Greek New Testament, each one pregnant with meaning and throbbing with deity. Because in this wonderful prologue, we get a picture of who Jesus is and what He has done. Jesus is the centerpiece, of course, of all of the New Testament, but especially of the book of Hebrews. The author is developing the high priesthood of Jesus and what that means for us. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Follow with me, please, as I read the word of the Lord. Long ago, God, having spoken to the fathers by the prophets at different times and in different ways, in these last days has spoken to us in His Son, whom He has appointed heir of all things, and through whom He made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of His nature, sustaining all things by His powerful Word. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high. So He became superior to the angels, just as the name He inherited is more excellent than theirs. What Shakespeare is to playwrights, the Mississippi to rivers, and Westminster Abbey to cathedrals. Hebrews 1, 1 through 4 is not only to all the book of Hebrews, but to all of the New Testament. From high atop this spiritual Mount Everest, we are allowed to look out over all of the panorama of God's 
plan of salvation that he has accomplished. And at the heart, at the center, at the apex of it all is Jesus Christ. God has spoken his final word in his son, Jesus Christ. Have you ever stopped to think that unless God speaks, unless God reveals himself, you could never know him? Why, you would never be able to know God unless he reveals himself in Christ and in his word. Oh, I know, I know the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows forth his handiwork. But the heavens cannot explain to you what Jesus was doing on the cross when he died for your sins. I recognize history tells us about the sovereignty of God. But history, uninterpreted, can't explain to you what Jesus was doing on the cross when he died for your sins. I know that my conscience and your conscience bears witness to the morality of God. But your conscience, unaided, cannot tell you and teach you what God was doing through Christ when Jesus died on the cross for your sins. No. The universe, history, and your conscience is all one giant hieroglyph unless you have God's Rosetta Stone, Jesus. And that's what the book of Hebrews is all about. You see, God tells us at the very beginning, long ago, He spoke to the fathers by the prophets, but now in these last days, He has spoken unto us in His Son. Notice that. He has spoken to us. Jesus is the revelation of God. Speech is a vehicle of revelation. If you and I want to know each other, what do we do? Well, the normal method of me getting to know you and you getting to know me is speech. We talk. You tell me your name. You tell me about yourself. I tell you about myself. We speak. We talk. Speech is a vehicle of revelation. God has revealed. God has spoken. God is a speaking God. And God is a God who reveals through His speech. And God's final speech is His living Word, none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Speech is a vehicle of revelation but speech is also a vehicle of communication. How do we communicate? Through speaking. And by speaking, we actually can communicate. And Jesus is the living Word of God. He is God's speech. That's the terminology the author of Hebrews uses. God has spoken to us by His Son. Speech is a vehicle of communication. Now, communication can be garbled at one of two places. It can be garbled at the source, or it can be garbled on the receiving end, right? Have you ever been listening to the radio, and all of a sudden they go off the air, and they're static, and then you were driving in your car, and they're off the air for 10 seconds, and then they come back on, they say, oops, sorry, folks, we had some technical difficulties here, we're, we were off the air, but now we're back on. Uh, communication can be garbled at the source. Communication can also be garbled at the receiving end. One of my favorite stories of Franklin D. Roosevelt's when he was president of the United States, and he complained about having to sit in all those interminably long receiving lines when people would come through, and he noticed something. He discovered that people were so odd to be in his presence, to meet the president, that they seldom really listened to anything that he said. So on one occasion, you may have read this story, may have heard this story, decided to conduct an experiment. And so for everybody who came through the receiving line, he leaned over and mumbled to them, I murdered my grandmother this morning. And so people were coming through the line, and he would lean over. They were shaking his hand. 
I murdered my grandmother this morning. And to his surprise, virtually nobody heard what he was saying. They would, they would say to him, wonderful, Mr. President. Oh, bless you, Mr. President. We're praying for you, Mr. President. And then finally, the last person who came through the line was the ambassador to Bolivia. And he apparently, when the president leaned over and said, I, I mumbled, I murdered my grandmother this morning, he apparently understood what the president said. He leaned over and whispered into the president's ear, I'm sure she had it coming. <laughs> so spe speech can be garbled at the source, but it can also be garbled at the receiving end. But folks, when God speaks, he does not stutter. When God speaks, He speaks with crystal clarity. When God speaks, if there is any misunderstanding of what God is saying, the problem is on my end and your end, not on God's end, because God has spoken clearly His final word in one who is His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Speech is a vehicle of communication, but speech is a vehicle of salvation. Jesus is God's salvation for us by giving us Jesus in everything that Jesus said and did culminating in the cross in his resurrection. That is the ground and the foundation of our salvation speech is a vehicle of salvation. And it is through Jesus that throughout the entire book of Hebrews that we learn that Jesus is our great savior. You'll know the name Woody Allen. Most of you will, if I mention it. He's a famous actor, famous movie producer. He gave an interview several years ago, and I was intrigued by the interview because Woody Allen was asked this question. He said, Mr. Allen, I know that you are a self-proclaimed atheist, but I want to ask you if there is a God, if there were a God, and if that God should speak to you, what would you most want to hear him say? Woody Allen thought for a moment, and then he responded, well, if there is a God, and if that God should speak to me, I would most want to hear him say three words. You are forgiven. Ladies and gentlemen, it is the heartbeat of every sane person on this planet. If there is a God... And if that God should speak to you individually, you would most want to hear him say, you are forgiven. And the author of Hebrews is telling us that there is a way to be forgiven, a method to be forgiven, a path to follow, and a person who is our Savior, and his name is Jesus Christ. And because God has spoken his final word to us in Jesus, we can have salvation. There's an answer to our question. There's a solution to our problem. There's salvation for our soul in Jesus Christ. God has spoken his final word in his son, the Lord Jesus. But did you notice when you begin reading in verse 1 that the author makes a contrast between the Old Testament prophets through whom God spoke then in days past and his speech in Jesus in the last days. Did you see that? Notice, God long ago spoke to our fathers by the prophets. He spoke to them piecemeal in different ways, different modes, different manners. But now in these last days, God has spoken to us in his son, Jesus the author is comparing and contrasting his revelation of himself through prophets to us and his revelation of himself through Jesus to us. Now, I love the prophets, don't you? 
I love reading the prophets and occasionally preaching from the prophets. They were an unusual lot, weren't they? You know, all those prophets spoke with different accents. Did you notice that? You've got the lofty eloquence of Isaiah. You've got the plaintive wail and cry of Jeremiah. You have the schizophrenia of Jonah. You have the country accent of the country preacher Amos who calls the women of his congregation fat cows of Bashan. Not exactly how to win friends and influence people, huh? All of the prophets spoke with a different accent, but they all spoke the Word of God. The same God spoke through them His Word to the fathers of old. Now, in this time, in these last days, God has spoken His final Word in one who is, look at it, in one who is His Son. And the language that is expressed here, there is no article. It doesn't say technically before the Son. It literally in Greek just says in Son. God has spoken in Son. And the Son is obviously Jesus because there is none other than He. He is a member of the Godhead. And by constructing it that way, the author of Hebrews is emphasizing the character and nature of Jesus. Jesus is not like a prophet. The prophets were fine, dandy and wonderful, but the prophets lived and then they died. Jesus lived, died, and then He lived again. The prophets spoke the Word of God. The prophets said said the Word of God, but Jesus said, I say unto you. The prophet spoke the Word of God. Jesus is the Word of God. And so there's a world of difference between the prophets, as great as they are, and Jesus. Same God, same God speaking through the prophets, who now is speaking through Christ. In fact, Jesus is God's personal revelation, incarnate in the flesh, come to us, come down from heaven to become one of us. Second member of the Trinity, God has spoken His final word to those of us who are in these days in which we live. And we better pay attention. God has spoken. Are you listening? You know, when I was growing up, my mother would occasionally, I would occasionally do verbal battle with my mother. And so I would argue with her, disagree with her about something. And somewhere along the way, in that back and forth, in that verbal battle, my mother would utter four words. And when she uttered these four words, I knew that I needed to be very careful. I was treading on thin ice. Her four words were, that's my final word. And I learned early on that to step across this verbal line in the sand that my mother had drawn, to step across her verbal line was to invite pain <laughs> into one's young life. Because when mom said, that's my final word, she meant it. And ladies and gentlemen, when God says to you and me today, Jesus is my final word, there is no other word. There is no other, other one to whom you can go. You don't go to Muhammad, he's not God's final word. You do not go to Confucius, he's not God's final word, nor is Buddha God's final word, nor is Mary Baker, Patterson, Glover, Eddie God's final word. No, God's final word is Jesus Christ. And the whole book of Hebrews, watch it as you study it all the way through. You're going to see the concept of speech and hearing. Every now and then the author is going to say, God has spoken. Are you listening? 
And we better listen and we better pay attention to God's final word because you see Jesus is God's revelation and His speech to us. And everything Jesus says is what God says because Jesus perfectly represents God. Because Jesus not only perfectly represents God, He is God in human flesh. And therefore we must pay careful, careful attention to everything that God is saying to us through Jesus because He reveals nothing other than God through Himself and He reveals fully God to us. He is God's revelation to us. So God spoke to the fathers, He revealed Himself in days have gone by, but now He has revealed Himself in finality, in His final word through Jesus Christ. Then the author launches out into seven statements about who Jesus is and what He's done. There are seven clauses here, participial and relative clauses, all of which are modifying who Jesus is. I call these the seven wonders of Jesus. By the way, do you remember when we were in school, you studied the seven wonders of the ancient world? Remember that? The uh, statue of Zeus at Olympia, the great pyramid of Giza, the hanging gardens of Babylon, the temple of, of uh, Artemis at Ephesus, the uh, great uh, mausoleum at Halicarnassus, the lighthouse of Rhodes, or the lighthouse at Alexandria, and the Colossus of Rhodes, the seven wonders of the ancient world. And I want you to know you put them all together and they're nothing but belly button lint compared to the seven wonders of Jesus. I want you to see these seven wonders of Jesus. Let's unpack them quickly this morning. Notice the first thing he said. God has spoken his final word in his son, whom he has appointed heir of all things. The first wonder of Jesus is he, God has said that because Jesus is my son, he is therefore my heir, and everything there is in the physical universe and everything there is in the spiritual universe is going into the lap of Jesus at the end when it's all said and done. Jesus is God's heir. Jesus is the one who is the recipient of all things, who is the owner of all things. He's the heir. Now think about it. An heir receives an inheritance. And Jesus receives all of God's inheritance. And by the way, in the book of Romans, because Romans tells us, Paul tells us in Romans, that Jesus is God's heir as well, and we are joint heirs with Christ. So that everything Jesus receives as the heir, He is giving to us as those who are rightly related to Him by salvation. You're a joint heir with Christ today. When it's all said and done, everything in the universe, physical, everything in the spiritual world, is all coming into the lap of Jesus. And if you're related to Jesus by virtue of salvation, if He's your Savior, it's all coming into your lap as well through all eternity as you worship Him, celebrate Him, and fellowship with Him because he said, I will share of mine with you. You're a joint heir. And so God says about Jesus, He's the heir of all things. And not only that, the second wonder of Jesus is, notice, He's the one through whom God made the universe. He's the agent of creation of all things. So now we start at the consummation. He's the heir of all things. Everything's going into the lap of Jesus. And now rewind all the way to the beginning of creation. And there was Jesus. 
When God created the universe, there was Jesus. When God stepped out from behind the curtain of nowhere onto the platform of nothingness and spoke a universe into existence, Jesus was God's agent of creation. Now think with me. If Jesus is God's agent of creation, then that means He was there before creation. Then that means He's uncreated. And if He is uncreated, that means He is eternal because the only one who is eternal is God. And so Jesus is one with the eternal Father in the Trinity, second member of the Trinity, who not only is the heir of all things, but now who was God's agent of creation of all things. Now, let me just ask you a quick question. Don't you imagine, don't you reckon that if somebody is the heir of all things and the creator of all things, you might want to listen to him? You might want to pay attention to what he has to say and what he's done for you. The third wonder of Jesus. Look at verse 3. He is the radiance of God's glory. And also he's the exact expression of God's nature. He is the radiance of God's glory. The word glory there. If I were to ask you to walk up to the pulpit today and define glory, define God's glory, could you do it? It would be pretty tough for some of us. That's kind of one of those $5 stained glass words we use all the time, but we're not real sure what it means. You see, glory, God's glory is the manifestation of all of His attributes of deity that He is willing for you to see and to know. The expression of who God is revealed in history through Jesus Christ is the glory of God. John talks about it in John chapter 1. He said, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, even the glory of the only begotten One who has been given to us by the Father. You want to know what God looks like? You want to know who God is? Take a look at Jesus. You want to know what God would say in certain situations? Take a look at Jesus. He is the exact expect representation the sun is the exact radiance that's the word radiance it means outshining it's the picture of the sun and the sun shines and the radiance of the sun shines because of that's the nature of the sun Jesus partakes of the very nature of God he is divine he is deity and as the glory of God is revealed it's primarily revealed through Christ and that's what the author is saying who Jesus is. He is, he is the one, and it's through His radiance of God's glory that we see and know the glory of God. So as essential as for Christ, as light is to the sun, as blue is to the sky, as wet is to water, it's as the glory of God shines through Jesus Christ because in, in terms of his nature, he is God in human flesh. Isn't that remarkable? And then the, the fourth wonder of Jesus, he's the exact representation, the exact expression of God's nature. So if Jesus is fully divine in the first, that previous statement, now he is a person, a member of the Trinity. So you've got three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and one divine nature. And so now he is the one who is the very expression of God's nature. I want you to think with me a minute. The image of a substance or the image of something is made from a different substance than that which it images, right? Have you ever been to a wax museum? 
You go to a wax museum. We've got one in the Dallas area there. The last time I was there, they had a, they had a wax figure of Clint Eastwood. I mean, it was, you thought there was Clint Eastwood standing there. If you would step beyond the, beyond the rope and go over and touch him, you would think he would just speak to you. I mean, it looks so real, right? I mean, there he was. You could just hear him say, a man's got to do, you know, what a uh, man's got to know his own limitations. You know, you can hear him say that. You can hear him say there are two kinds of people in the world, my friend. Those with loaded guns and those who dig, and you dig. You can hear him say that. Now, if you're wondering, now, wait a minute, where's all that from? You have to recognize that in all of the universe, there are two kinds of people. There are people who are ignorant and lack culture, and there are people who love Western movies. There are two kinds of people. And so that's kind of where that is. So you just figure out where you are and classify yourself, and we go from there. And so there stands Clint. It looks just like him. But if you were to go over and touch him, he's made of wax. He's not the real thing. He looks like the real thing, but his substance is different. What the author of Hebrews is saying to you in this verse, Jesus is the exact expression and rep, rep, expression and representation of God's very nature. In other words, what God is, Jesus is. He is fully God. He is fully divine. He's the exact expression of God's nature. And then the fifth wonder. And he sustains all things in the universe by his powerful word. Can you imagine the magnitude of this universe? The immensity of our universe? Get out your telescope. Well, go ahead. Get out your telescope and train it on the night sky. And what do you see? Well, we are told that there are 100 billion galaxies. In each of those galaxies, there are anywhere from 1 to 200 billion stars. Take a look over there at our little galaxy. It's kind of a puny galaxy. It's called the Milky Way. In fact, our, our galaxy is so small that uh, if you were to take the sun and re proportionally reduce our galaxy down to a football field, the sun would be on the 50-yard line. Earth would be four yards away on the 46-yard line. And Pluto would be on the goal line. And our galaxy is just one of the, even though there are 100 and so billion stars within our little solar system, our little solar system is just puny. And furthermore, did you know that the Earth, our Earth is rotating on its axis at the speed of 1,000 miles per hour right now as you sit in this building? It's rotating at the speed of 1,000 miles an hour. Did you know that the, our earth and our sun is rotating at the speed of 66,000 miles an hour? And that the, so, the galaxy called our solar system is rotating around all these other galaxies at the speed of 483,000 miles per hour. But even that's not the galactic speed limit. Light travels at the speed of 186,000 miles per second. It's incredible. Who holds all of that together? There's one cosmic cop whose badge is deity and whose whistle is omnipotence, and he directs galactic traffic every moment of every day of every planet and every particle in the universe. And he does it by his powerful Word. Get out your microscope. Oh, go ahead. Get out your microscope. 
and get, the, get your slide and put in there, and get your drop of Baton Rouge pond water and put on the slide and focus in, and what do you see? There are 52,000 species of protozoan on the planet. And in every drop of pond water from Louisiana, there are anywhere between 2,000 and 4,000 protozoan, species of protozoan. Ha! Well, there's Paramecium. I know him anywhere. He's kind of shaped like the sole of my foot. And, oh, look, there's amoeba. I could recognize amoeba as well swimming around in there. And, oh, there's Euglena and her little dark spot, her organelle, which orients toward the sun. And she's one of the few places on the planet, one of the few little microbes on the planet who can conduct photosynthesis and uh, feed herself that way. Or she can wave food into her tiny mouth through her little cilia, waving that food into her mouth. And there are two to 4,000 protozoan not visible to the naked eye. I've got to have a microscope. And yet, Scripture says, who holds all the microcosm of a drop of pond water together? And that would be Jesus, who does so by His powerful Word. Now, I want to ask you a question. Time out. Don't you reckon... Don't you reckon that if Jesus can hold a universe together, and if Jesus can hold a drop of pond water and all the protozoan together, if He can sustain all of that, don't you reckon He can hold your life together? I wonder if He can hold your marriage together. You think He can do that? I wonder if He can help you through school, kind of hold things together in your school life. Do you reckon Jesus can take care of you. Just a thought. Just a thought. But, when I come to the sixth wonder of Jesus, my breath is taken away. <gasps> I cannot believe what I read. Because the sixth wonder of Jesus, having made purification for sins. What? Sin? Who in the world brought sin into the universe? Sin is rebellion against God. Sin is that which is an affront to God and is contrary to His law and is what brings about our spiritual death and the reason why we are spiritually dead and the reason why we're on the road to hell and the reason why we are separated from the God who made us is because of sin. Who in the world would bring sin into the universe? Who would dare? to sin against this holy God. Well, let's ask those planets in the universe. How about you, planets up there? How about you, Aldebaran? How about you, Betelgeuse? How about you, Cassiopeia? How about you, Denim? How about all of you planets and stars that are up there? Which one of you brought sin into the universe? And I hear them. In their booming cosmic voices as they respond, don't look at us. How about you, little protozoan, in that pond water drop? What about you, amoeba and paramecium and euglena and all the other 2,000 to 4,000 of you in that little drop of pond water? Which one of you brought sin into the universe? And I hear them in their little microscopic voices as they squeak back, don't look at us. Who would dare? 
to bring sin into God's universe. Well, take a look at the guy who's preaching to you today. And take a look around at those seated beside you in your pews and in the balcony today. Because we are the culprits. We are the reason. And yet, this Jesus, who is the inheritor of all things, who's the creator of all things, who's the same one in the, in the image of God and the perfect representation of the nature of God and who sustains all things by His powerful Word. Contrary to your thinking, in spite of all of that, yet He stepped from heaven's glory into this world and died on a cross for you and for me. He made purification for sins. And there's an interesting thing here in the grammar of this. You don't see it in the English. But up until now, the author has constructed this in the order of subject, verb, and object. He inherits all things. He is the creator of all things. Subject, verb, object, subject, verb, object. Now all of a sudden you get to this point and the author says, I want to make a special point here. And so he takes the object cleansing and takes it and puts it front. There's the object cleansing for sin. And then he uses a kind of verb tense and voice that indicates this. Cleansing for sin he himself and he alone has made. And it is a permanent cleansing for sin that Jesus made when he died on the cross for you and for me. Aren't you grateful today that there's an answer to your sin problem? Aren't you grateful today there's a solution and a satisfaction for your sin paid on the cross by Jesus and His shed blood that makes it possible for you to be saved from your sin and brought into His kingdom? Oh, thank you, Jesus, for what you have done for us, cleansing for sin. You yourself and you alone have permanently made. And then the seventh wonder of Jesus, after he did all of this, look at it. What did he do? He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The majesty on high is just a circumlocution that means God. He sat down on God's throne. God exalted him, as you read in Philippians 2, 5 through 11, on that screen this morning. God has highly exalted him because he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, and yet rose again, and God has lifted him up and given him a name above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, every tongue confess, Jesus Christ is Lord. God exalted him to the right hand, and he sat down, and it's a perfect tense. He sat down, he took his seat, never to abdicate it again. And the only time he'll leave that seat is when God the Father gives the word, and he says, Son, go down and bring my people home. And riding in on a white horse comes Jesus, and all of the armies of heaven with him, and all of those who withstand him and oppose him will fall at the power of his spoken word. And Jesus will bring us to himself, and there we will be with him forever as he sits upon the throne of God. That's who Jesus is. And that's what Jesus has done. And that's how the book of Hebrews begins. And oh, for the next nine months, you are going to have so much fun 
learning the rest of the story. 1969, West End Elementary School, Rome, Georgia. Last day of the school year in May. The sixth grade class is about to have her year-end class party. And at the class party of the sixth grade, because that's the oldest grade in those days, sixth grade, after that, you graduated to junior high school. And so you're in the sixth grade, you're at the, you're at the top of the food chain. And everybody else, first through fifth grade, got to have their little parties in their little room with their little Kool-Aid and cookies, but not the sixth grade class. Oh, no. You got to board a bus, drive across town to Rock Ridge Roller Rink. And there for two hours, you got to celebrate the end of school and the fact that you were in the sixth grade and all the Coke and cookies you could eat and you get to skate. And it was a wonderful time. But also there was a tradition at West End Elementary School. And the tradition was that every year the students in the class, the sixth grade class, would elect, they would vote and elect a Mr. and Miss West End Elementary School. And then those names would be put on a plaque, and they're placed on the wall in the school there. And it came as no surprise when all of the votes were tallied that Terry Littlejohn was elected Miss West End Elementary School. She was drop-dead gorgeous. She was smart as she could be. She was Marsha Brady with brown hair. And she was elected Miss West End Elementary School. Really was no surprise to anyone. But when the votes were tallied, it was quite a shock to the class that Mr. West End Elementary School turned out to be David Allen. And that was an unbelievable shock because David Allen wasn't the football star, the sports star. No, that was Brad Morrow. He was in that category. He was Brad Pitt before there was a Brad Pitt. Nor was David Allen the smartest man and the boy in the class. That would go to Paul Webb, who scored a perfect 1600 on the SAT when we graduated from high school, along with one other student out of that class of about 15 scored perfect scores on the SAT. It's pretty unbelievable. No, he didn't get it either. It was a shock that it came to David Allen. David Allen was the shortest boy in the class. Half the girls were taller than he was. And yet he was elected Mr. West End Elementary School. We boarded the bus, made our way to Rock Ridge Roller Rink. Everybody was having a wonderful time skating and so forth. And then all of a sudden the lights began to go down. And people began to exit the rink. And those lights began to turn against up onto the multicolored ball of many colors that was turning and that was scattering those colorful lights down on the floor. And there was another tradition that everybody else would leave the skate floor and Mr. and Miss West End Elementary School would go out and hold hands and skate around the rink with everybody else watching. Now, this was a tradition of which I had no knowledge, but to which I had no objection. <laughs> and so there I got to stand. Terry Littlejohn, now you got to understand she is way beyond my pay grade. And so there I am holding her hand, and we got to skate together. And I want you to know, in 1969, there were lots of things we did not have. We didn't have any computers. 
We didn't have any cell phones. We didn't have any CDs. We didn't have Nintendo, Segas, Xboxes. We didn't have iPhones and iPads and all of that. We didn't have any of that. But I want you to know we had Tommy James and the Shondells. Well, I don't hardly know her, but I think I could love her, crimson and clover, over and over. And out across the rink, so we skated holding hands. And we got about a around one full lap, maybe half of another. And she said, this is, uh, this is awkward. You know, everybody's looking at us. And suddenly out of my mouth came the coolest words I have ever spoken to a girl in my entire life. When I said to her, no, they're not looking at us. They're looking at you. Now, you know, it was wonderful to know about Terry Littlejohn. I knew who she was, where she lived, up back behind the high school over there. And I'd see her in class, and I knew things about her. It was wonderful to know about her. But I want you to know, it was a whole lot better and a whole lot more fun to hold her hand and skate with her and talk with her as we skated around that rink. A whole lot more fun. It's a wonderful thing to know about God. It's a wonderful thing to know facts about God. He is omnipotent. He's omniscient. He's omnipresent. It's a wonderful thing to know about God. But I want you to know it is a far, far more wonderful thing to know that God personally through Jesus Christ. And I remember when I was about nine years old, sitting on about the fourth row, at West Rome Baptist Church in Rome, Georgia on a Sunday night. And Jesus, as it were, stepped into my pew and he took my hand and he said, David, why don't you come and skate through life with me? And from that moment until this, Jesus and I have been skating through life, having more fun than it ought to be illegal, as much fun as you have as a Christian. Because you know Jesus Christ. All because God has spoken His final word to us in Jesus so that we might know Him, so that we might fellowship with Him, so that our sins might be forgiven and we might know Christ and be in Him and know our names are written in the Lamb's book of life and know that when the day comes, our, either our death or the Lord calls us to be with Him through the return of Christ, we will be with Him. Because he's God's great prophet. God has spoken his final word. He's God's great priest. He made purification for our sins. And he's God's great king. He sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And the question today is, is he your savior? And the wonderful news is he can be. If you will turn from your sin and by faith believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you will recognize what God says about you is true, you are a sinner. If you're here and you don't know Christ or you're listening to me, watching me online, you do not know Christ as your Lord and Savior. If you will recognize who Jesus is and who you are, turn from your sin. By faith, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. This Bible says God makes a promise to you. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. God will save you today. 
wherever you are and whoever you are in this building or listening to my voice at home or anywhere else, God will save all who will turn to Christ. Why? Because He has made purification for your sins. And He's placed a condition on receiving Him. It's called faith. All you have to do is believe. You don't work for it. You don't pay money to get it. You don't live a certain, try to do certain good works, and then God says, bless your heart, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to save you now. No. It's a gift from God by faith. It's, it's grace through faith. God's grace through faith is what saves every human being. And so come to Christ today. Come to Christ today in a moment during this time of response. But secondly, most of you here are Christians. And what God wants to know is, I've spoken, are you listening? What will you do about this great Savior, this great high priest, whom I have given to you, whom I have revealed, who paid the penalty for your sins? I expect you to make him Lord of your life and live and serve for him every moment of every day from now on. I expect you to grow spiritually. I expect you to love my word, to walk with me and to love me. I expect you to serve the people of God. I expect you to witness and share the gospel to those who don't know Christ because after all, nothing can be more important than the salvation of a human soul, right? And so press on to spiritual maturity. Run the race that is set before us, keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Pray with me before we respond to God's Word today. Holy and Heavenly Father, we call out to you now, and we ask that you would take your Word and move it Help it to lodge into the hearts and lives of every person under the sound of my voice. Oh, God, today, make people come to Christ. Lord, if there's one unsaved person in this building, may they come to Jesus today. But, Father, most of us are believers, and I pray right now that we would take seriously this great book of Hebrews and the Savior whom it speaks, Jesus Christ. And, oh, Lord... May we do business with you today. May we commit ourselves now on the cusp of this new nine-month Bible study of Hebrews that, Lord, we are going to study this book, live this book, learn from this book. And we are going to be faithful to you to grow spiritually. Lord, this is our prayer. Prepare us now to respond to you as our pastor comes. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.